We are going to cover a lot of ground this morning. We're going to be in chapters 2, 3, and part of chapter 4. One of the uh, challenges we often face with narrative is exactly how to cover it. You know, when you go through an epistle, it's easy to kind of go verse by verse, and you can actually spend time on the whole entire morning on just a couple of verses. It's a little more difficult than narrative. We'd be here until I'm 70, which wouldn't be a good thing. So sometimes we'll have to... What's that? A year. A year from now, yeah. That's why he's sitting in the front, <laughs> so he can mock me. Um, so sometimes we cut, we'll cover chunks of narrative together. And so I'm going to do that this morning. There are five specific events or episodes in David's life that take place in these chapters this morning. And they take us from the death of King Saul all the way up to David becoming king over Israel. And so we're going to look at those five events. They actually take place over about a seven and a half year period of time. And when we look at these, I think we're going to see some things as they relate to Christ because David is a type of Christ. That's a fancy theological term. It means he's an example, a representation. The word is just the word type, T-Y-P-E. And so David is intended to be a type of Christ, a foreshadowing, an example of Christ. And so as we look at him, oftentimes what we're going to do is relate that to what does that teach us about Christ. And so we're going to look at, at these five different events of David's life and we're going to draw something out of it. We're going to look at basically what the primary character trait that David displays in that event and how that then relates to Christ. So they're going to reveal to us, first and foremost, why David was a, God, was a man after God's own heart. And then secondly, it's going to foreshadow some things about Christ, reveal something about him to us as well. And I'm going to do that by giving you five words to remember this morning. So there'll just be five words that will summarize, each one of those words will summarize the section that we're in. The first thing I want to do is look at the first four verses or so. This is where David actually seeks the Lord's guidance. The first thing that happens is the death of King Saul. And we saw David's response last week when he mourned the death of Saul and his best friend Jonathan. Today we see another response, and it has to do with David's future role as king. Now remember, it's been seven and a half years here since David was anointed king. The Lord actually told David that he would be anointed king, and so David's been waiting this whole time. We know that David had been patient. He had been pursued by Saul. There were times where David could have taken Saul's life and taken the kingdom for himself, and he didn't do it. And so it's been at least, like I said, seven, seven and a half years now. For much of that time, David was actually running in fear for his life from Saul. Now, we spent the last year or so here in a place called Ziklag, which was Palestinian territory. And the reason David was there was because he couldn't find a safe place in all of Israel, because no matter where he went, Saul would pursue him, would chase him down in an attempt to kill him, well, then all of a sudden, Saul is dead unexpectedly. So now that Saul was dead, we might expect that David would march right into the capital, which is Gebeah, where Saul put the capital for Israel. We would expect that David would march right into there with his 600 men and basically take what was rightly promised to him, the throne. That would make sense to us, wouldn't it? The king is dead. David had been promised a king, kingdom. Why not go in there now and take it? But we don't see that with David. Instead, he actually turns to the Lord and he asks for guidance. Look at chapter 2. It says, Then it came about afterwards, this is verse 1, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up 
to the cities of Judah. And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So the first thing we see here is that David, looking at the kingdom, knows that it's his, but instead of rushing right up and taking what rightfully has been given to him by the Lord, instead he inquires of the Lord. Gibeah was actually the capital city. It's where Saul had lived. Strategically, that would have made sense for David to go right there. In fact, in some respects, David could have assumed he was simply being obedient to the Lord by going up there and taking it. That would also make sense to us, wouldn't it? If the Lord told us we had the right to something, and the opportunity came for us to take it, how many of us would assume, yeah, I should go do it. I should go take it, right? But David didn't do that. Now, it's a good thing David asked because the Lord didn't intend for him to become king over Israel at this point. He intended for him to become king only over Judah initially. And so it's a good thing that David waited and asked. Look at what he does here. He says, Lord, should I go up? So the first question is, is it time? Is it your time for me to do this, Lord? And the answers, the Lord's answer to us, yes, it's, it's time. But then David just doesn't even assume anything at that point. He then asks the Lord, well, where should I go? There's an incredible amount of um, inquiry and dependence, submission to the Lord that we see in this passage here. That's the first word that I actually want you to remember, is submission. What we find here, David is provided with the opportunity to take the throne and he doesn't do it. Instead, he submits himself to the Lord's will and to the Lord's desire at this point. He doesn't assume anything. In fact, this is a pattern we see in David's life. I think there are seven instances where David inquires of the Lord before doing anything. It was something that was constantly on his heart, the desire to walk in the footsteps of the Lord. He wanted to obey. He wanted to be submissive to the Lord's will. Now we know that David struggled. He wasn't perfect. There were times where he didn't. And we have examples of that, and we'll study that in the second half of the book. So what we do see in this first section here is David's submission, his desire to submit to the Lord's will, not necessarily his own. And so submission is a good word, I think, to describe this. What does that teach us about Christ? You know, it's interesting because Christ's earthly life is a life of submission. Here we have one of the Godhead, the Son of God, responsible for creating what we see, yet he submits himself, comes to earth in the flesh, but during that time he submitted himself to the Father. In fact, John chapter 4, verse 34 says this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. John chapter 5, verse 30 says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What do you suppose is the greatest example of the Lord's desire to submit himself to the Father's will? Anybody have a passage in mind they want to shout out? I see some heads nodding. That's exactly where I was going. Gethsemane, we have Jesus, Matthew 26. Jesus in the garden. Matthew's account records that he goes off to pray. He's sweating drops of blood. It's pretty clear in the text that he's not crazy about going to the cross. Nobody would want to suffer through that. 
Remember, Jesus was also human. He wasn't fully di- just fully divine, but he was fully human, which means he would experience not just all of the physical pain, but the torment, but also the emotional struggle. We know that when he goes to the cross, it isn't just about the physical pain. It's the fact that he knows he will be separated from the Father because of sin that will be poured out and laid upon his shoulders. And so twice in Matthew's account, Jesus goes to the Father and says, you can take this cup from me. I don't have to do this. But not my will, but what? But your will. Jesus lived a life of total dependence and submission to the Heavenly Father to accomplish His purpose and His will, not His own. And we see that reflected in David's life story to some degree as well. Like I said, he wasn't perfect. He sinned. Obviously, Christ didn't sin. But one of the ways that David represents Christ was through this desire to constantly be under God's will, to submit to His authority, to His desires. And we see that here, where again, he asked twice. doesn't assume anything. It had already been given to him. But it was so important for David to stop and say, okay, before I do this, before I take what's rightly mine, before I take what God has promised me, I want to make sure it's okay with the Lord and that I do this the way that He wants me to do this. And so he prays. So the first word, I think, that will summarize this for us is the word submission. Let's move on to verses 4 and following. The second event that actually took place is actually found in 1 Samuel chapter 31. It's basically when Saul and Jonathan are put to death. Some men from Jabesh Gilead risked their own lives and went into Philistine territory to retrieve the bodies of Saul and Jonathan so that they could receive a proper burial. I don't know if you remember that story or not, but they risked their lives to do that. And it's because of their loyalty to Saul. They put themselves at great risk by doing that. There's, a, I think, a movie that just came out here called um, 1917. Is that what it's, is that what it's called? Um, true life story about two individual soldiers who are sent into enemy territory to prevent an, a, basically what would have been a Nazi trap on some Allied soldiers. Had they not been able to do it, 1,700 men would have been would have lost their lives. It's a dangerous thing to go into enemy enemy territory, and so these men of Jabesh Gilead do just that, risk their own lives. And so we come to this passage today where David reflects on that, 2 Samuel chapter 2, it says in verse 2, David went up from there, took his two wives with him, verse 3, and David brought up his men who were with him, each with his own household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron, just as the Lord had told him. Then the men of Judah came there, anointed David king over the house of Judah. They told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and he said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, because you have shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord, and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I will show this goodness to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. This is interesting. This is David's first act as king. And it's an act of loyalty. Notice what he does here with these men. Basically, these men, if you remember, were David's enemies. They actually lived um, northern city east of the Jordan River. They were part of Saul's army. 
They were actually enemies of David. They were pursuing David, attempted to kill David. And here it is, after David is moved to Hebron, becomes the king of Judah, again, the southern half of Israel, some men come to him and say, hey, these men from Jabesh Gilead, they did Saul a favor. They honored him by going and finding his body and then giving him a proper burial according to the law. Now some, some kings during David's day, even some Israel kings later on in Israel's history, would have probably sought these men out and put them to death. Because they were enemies. And that's what you do, right? You eliminate your enemies. But David doesn't do that. Instead, he shows them loyalty for what they had done. There's a couple of things that he, that he does here. First, he prays for the Lord's blessing upon them. That's verse 5. Notice he says, um, May the Lord bless, or may you be blessed of the Lord because you've shown this kindness to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now that word kindness is actually... Um, the word hesed, we talk about that often because it's an important Hebrew word. It's often translated as kindness or loving kindness. I'm of the opinion that it is better represented by loyalty. Um, there's some debate within Hebrew literature. Um, there's been a lot of work done on that word, and there's um, it's a difficult word to get your head completely wrapped around. There are times where it probably symbolizes more kindness, but there's almost always an element of loyalty or faithfulness, and it's often tied to the use of covenants, which bind two people together to be loyal to one another. And so David is is looking at these individuals and he prays that the Lord's blessing would be upon them because of their loyalty. Not just their kindness to Saul, but their loyalty, their devotion to him as their king. So he prays for the Lord's blessing on them in verse 5. But then he also promises that just as the Lord would be faithful to them, he would be as well. Look at verse 6. It says, Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I will also show this goodness to you. So David now devotes himself to be loyal to them as well, because they had been loyal to Saul. The last thing that he does is he encourages them. Look at verse 7. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Basically, what David does in this verse is he says, okay, they recognize that he's king. They might have been a little fearful. But David says, no, be strong. Be strong and valiant. Because now that I'm king over Judah, I will be faithful to you. And again, we have to remember that these were David's enemies to some degree. David's king of Judah. At this point, Israel is actually still being run by Saul's commander, Abner, who actively pursued David on Saul's behalf. That's who's running Israel now. Can you imagine what the men of Jabesh Gilead must have thought when David's messenger showed up there? (laughs) Because they know there's a civil war going on. They know that they're, they're enemies, Israel and Judah. And yet the king of Judah now goes up to summon them. But David does his best here to assure them that he will be loyal to them because of their loyalty to Saul. So the second word there that I want you to remember is loyalty. Another trait that stands out with David is this trait of loyalty. We see that throughout, not just his faithfulness and his loyalty to the Lord, but to others who are faithful and loyal to Lord as well, or to the Lord as well, but also even something like this where they were loyal to Saul. They recognized his role as king. And that the Lord had done that. We also, we're going to study this a little bit later. Um, this plays out with the story of Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, where David seeks him out 
and is then, and then fulfills a promise of loyalty to, to um, Mephibosheth that he had made to Jonathan and to Saul. And so we see this trait throughout David's life, this loyal, faithful relationship that he had with the Lord, with others. It's another trait we see shared by Christ, is it not? One of the ways we so oftentimes see this idea of loyalty played out is through the issuing of covenants. We saw God's God's covenant with Noah and ultimately with the earth. We see his covenant with Abraham and with Moses and with David. And all of those have an element of loyalty to it. Let me come to what Christ says in Luke chapter 22, where he takes the cup and he says, This cup which is poured out for you is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Christ established a covenant with us, and the purpose in doing that is to demonstrate loyalty, faithfulness. He bound himself to be faithful to us. The reason we have hope in this life is because of the Lord's faithfulness, because of the loyalty of Christ. That's where our hope lies. One of my favorite verses is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. It's a rather difficult statement. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. I got asked on the phone the other day by a friend of mine as we were talking. He's like, so how do we explain those who appear to walk with the Lord and then abandon him or reject him? And we talked about some of the recent people, Christian leaders that have done that, um, outright rejected. One of them, the author of uh, Joshua Harris, the author of the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, very popular in homeschooling communities, has all but rejected Christianity as we know it. He was a pastor. He went to Dallas, you know, seminary. How does an individual do something like that? And so he had brought that up and we began to talk. And so as I tried to apply my systematic theology and what that ultimately means and whether he was saved or not saved and all that kind of stuff, I was asked this question, well, what if somebody was faithful their whole life and somebody puts a gun to their head? Or somebody just threatens their life and they, in a moment of weakness, say, okay, I, I, I don't love Jesus. Is that person dead and gone as he loses salvation for life? And it's obviously an important question, but based on this passage, the Lord knows that there will be times where we're weak, where we struggle. David did. David fell, didn't obey the Lord. Every time we sin, it's an act of, in some respects, unfaithfulness, is it not? And yet, we're told that Jesus will remain faithful even when we're faithless. And I don't think that's a a passage that, I don't think Paul intends with that passage to say those who outright reject Christ. He's basically reminding us that when we're weak, at that moment when we lack faith, Jesus will be faithful. And that's really ultimately the word for loyalty. He'll remain loyal to us. You know, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that nothing can tear us out of his hands. And why is that? Because he's loyal and he's faithful. So that next, the second word I want you to remember is that word loyal or loyalty. Let's look at the third event. That comes in chapter 3. I'm going to summarize some stuff here. In chapter 2, verses 8 through 39, there's a, a situation that revolves around Abner. Abner was the commander of Saul's army. Again, he had pursued David constantly sought out David to put him to death. And after Saul's death, Abner appears to have taken taken over. 
He's still in control of Israel's army. The threat to David's life has not gone away. And in spite of knowing what the Lord had said about David being king, we know that Abner knew that because he repeats it a little bit later. He knew that the Lord had said David would be the king. But in spite of that, Abner then sets up Saul's son, Ish-bosheth, and makes him king, likely as kind of a puppet. We know how that works. When the military is in control and they have a puppet king, well, that's pretty much what happens here. So Abner really sought control for himself. He establishes Saul's son to be king. That leads to a civil war between Israel and Judah that lasts for over seven years. Near the end of that period, Saul's son accuses Abner of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines. It's possibly an attempt to secure his own rights to the throne. In other words, to sort of take back control. I'm sorry, it was probably an attempt by Abner, if it's true, to secure the throne because by sleeping with one of Saul's concubines and he produces an offspring, now he can say, hey, my offspring, part of the lineage of royalty. And so Abner, if he did this, had sought to establish his own line. But it's not really clear if Abner really did it or not, or if Saul's son was simply making it up out of paranoia. The text doesn't really make it clear. But either way, Saul's son accuses Abner of doing a wicked thing and trying to secure the throne for himself. Well, Abner does not take kindly to that. Look at verses, uh, look chapter 3, verse 6. We'll start in that. It came about while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. That's, again, trying to gain control. He was trying to be, ultimately be king without really being king. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and of his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. And yet today you charge me with guilt concerning this woman. May God do so to Abner and more also, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him. Basically what he just said there is, okay, you accuse me of this? May God strike me down if I don't accomplish the kingdom for David, just like the Lord promised. So he's switching sides here. Verse 10. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan over to Bathsheba, or Beersheba. And he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messages to David in his place, saying, Who's in the or whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. He said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you, namely, you shall not see my face until you bring Michael, Saul's daughter, that was David's first wife, promised to him by Saul, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Patil, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went and followed her as far as Barium. Then Abner said to him, Go, return, so he returned. Now Abner had consulted, or had consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines, and from the hand of all their enemies. 
Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, and in addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. Then Abner and twenty men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, Let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, and they may make a covenant with you, and that you may be king over all your soul's desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So we have this change of events here. David's enemy now seeks him out, wants to make a covenant, and promises to deliver all Israel to him. And remember, he's got some influence because he's captain over all of the Israeli army. Everybody in Israel probably knew him. And so he can basically swing all of them over to David's side, is the idea. Now, it may seem like a wise or a strategic move here on David's part. We could think that David's just being a little cunning here, because what does he do? Instead of killing him, he agrees to this covenant. A lot of commentators say that this reveals David's gullibility here, that it demonstrates he was far too quick to forgive, and that Abner was simply manipulating David for his own personal gain. It's always possible, I suppose. But the text actually suggests that Abner was genuine. In fact, um, we see that Abner becomes a very important man to David. Extremely man. And David actually mourns his death when he's killed. So the text seems to indicate that basically Abner recognized that David was exactly who God said he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be the king. And he finally submits himself to doing what the Lord wanted. Again, the text isn't super clear, but the impression we get from the text is that Abner ultimately became a faithful companion. And individual David did exactly what he told David he would do. David ultimately becomes king over Israel. And so the question is, is David simply being gullible and stupid here? Is he just being strategic? I don't think so. I think what we see in David here, and this is going to be the third word for you, is the word forgiveness. Something else we see in David is that he at times can be very forgiving. Um, We see that with some of his enemies. Oftentimes a king, when he would become a king, would slaughter all of the other king's children, wipe out his family to prevent succession to the throne. David didn't do that. In fact, Saul had two additional sons and some grandsons that were still alive when David became king. Many kings, the first thing they would do would be wipe them out to prevent them from claiming to be Descendants and succeeding to the throne. David didn't do that at this point. Um, later, later on in the passage, God actually there's a famine that takes place. Um, when David inquires of the Lord, the Lord says, "Well, it's because Saul had severely mistreated the Gideonites or Gibeonites, and it has to be made right." And so, at that point, the Gibeonites ask for some of Saul's descendants, and David hands them over. But it was all part of God's judgment on them. It wasn't David's own plan to get rid of his enemies. And so David has a tendency to show a tremendous amount of forgiveness at times, even with his enemies. And I think this is the case here with Abner. Some of David's closest advisors and military commanders actually accuse him of being gullible. Look at verses 22 to 25. The servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had gone, or he had sent them away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab... And all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he, was, and he has sent him away and has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? 
Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away? And he is already gone. You know, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and your coming in and to find out all that you were doing. In other words, David's closest commanders here are saying, this is just a trick. He's not here to help you. He's just here to figure out what you're doing and he's ultimately going to strike out and kill you. In essence, they're calling David gullible. He's too stupid to see what Abner's plan, real plan is. But I think it's an act of forgiveness here. We saw David forgive not just Abner here, willing to trust the Lord on this turn of events, but we even saw it with the previous men, did we not? His enemies? To extend loyalty to them was actually an act of forgiveness as well. Oftentimes with forgiveness comes this element of trust. You could almost throw that in as a second word here. Because what David ultimately is doing here is placing his trust in the Lord. Could he really trust Abner? Reason would say maybe not. But there's something that led David to do that. Probably his faith and trust in the Lord. So he extends forgiveness here to Abner. Sends him away in peace. In spite of what his own commanders say. And we'll see a little bit later that they've got it out for Abner and they ultimately kill him. Isn't this one of the greatest traits we see in Christ? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, looking down on those who had crucified him, what did he say? Yeah. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I had somebody ask me about that not too long ago as well. How could he do that? They knew what they were doing. They knew they were crucifying him. But they were deceived, they were blind. So here he is up on the cross, looking at his enemies, saying, forgive them, Lord. I don't know what they're doing. How did he respond with Peter when his, what appears to be probably his closest human friend, who has warned, you're going to betray me. No, I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, you will, Peter. No, no, I, I would die for you. Remember that graphic picture of Peter watching Jesus be tried from a distance. And when he's asked the third time, he denies Christ and the text tells us that Christ just turned and looked at him. Imagine what that must have been like. Peter ran out at that point and starts weeping. But imagine what that must have done to Christ's heart at that moment of weakness. Himself, knowing what he's facing. Knowing that his closest earthly companion was going to run away too. And yet, what does he do when he sees Peter on the beach? Calls him to himself, talks to him, encourages him a little bit, but also kind of says, okay, you're going to love me, love me. So we see this tremendous forgiveness there as well. Then it comes to us, obviously. How many times do we sin? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many times does the Lord have to forgive us? In fact, you know, what's, what, what strikes me is, you know, we have these passages, they always, I guess you'd call them Bible memory verses. Everybody seems to know them, you know. 1 John 1, nine. it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, even before we got saved, God made provision for when we would sin 
knowing better. It'd be one thing if he said, okay, I'll forgive your previous sin, but then you get saved, you got to stop. But he knew, and he made provision for that as well. Also made provision by giving us the Holy Spirit to help us to not sin, right? And even with that, a character trait that we see in Christ that is also reflected in David is this idea of forgiveness. That is the very nature of our God. And we see that reflected in David in this passage here as well. And what's interesting to me is there's also that element of trust in it with this as well, because think about it. I don't often feel like the Lord should forgive me. And I wonder sometimes, how can he forgive me? I know better. I knew better and still did it. And there's an element where I'm going to have to trust him on this. Just like David had to trust Abner. Trust the Lord. So his willingness to forgive Abner and to say, okay, maybe it's not the wisest thing to do. doesn't make sense that I should trust my enemy, this guy that's been out to try to kill me. There's an element of trust. I sometimes find that with myself where I go, you know, I'm going to trust the Lord on this one. He's been faithful. He's promised to forgive me. What he says that he has, I trust him. Let's move on to the fourth event. It starts in verse 28. I'm going to summarize the first seven verses or so there as well. And it's the death of Abner. Prior to defecting to David, Abner killed one of Saul's commanders during a battle between two armies. The man's name was Asael. And he had two brothers who were also commanders in David's army. When one of these brothers, Joab, learns that David had forgiven Abner and welcomed him into his service, he chastises David, obviously, we saw that, and he accuses Abner of deceiving David, basically calls him gullible. And so that's kind of what's going to drive this, is that Abner had killed somebody's brother. And so it happened to be this man that accuses David of being gullible here. He's upset with David because, basically, he killed my brother, how could you let him go, is the idea. So when David learns of Abner's death, death, he's going to do four things, but let's go ahead and look at verses, uh, I think it's 28 of chapter 3. Find it here. After, um, I'm sorry, verse 27. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Ashel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on his father's house, and may there, and may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge, or who is a leper, or who takes hold of this, um, this staff, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashael to death in the battle of Gibeon. Now what the text doesn't tell you there is it was an act of self-defense. Asahel had given this individual plenty of opportunity. He warned him, don't keep pursuing me. Go back home. Don't keep doing it. And he continued to do it and continued to do it. And so as an act of self-defense, in an act of, or a time of war, he killed this man. But Joab was having none of that. And so Joab conspires with his other brother, Abishai, and ultimately kills Abner. And so David does four things in response to this. That's verses 31 through 39. First thing he does is he declares his innocence and then he pronounces a curse on Joab and his family. 
Second thing he does, he denies Joab and his brother the opportunity to celebrate the death of Abner by forcing them to mourn him and to participate in his funeral. Look at verses 31 and following here. We'll start with 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the bier. Basically, what David does here is he does not give them opportunity to gloat and to celebrate. Instead, makes them participate in the funeral of the man they just killed. Second or third thing he actually does there is he mourns Abner's death and then honors him with a lament. Look at verses 20, or 32 through 35. Thus they buried Abner in Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. The king chanted a lament for Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. In other words, you haven't been taken captive in war. You were killed like an innocent man. And all the people wept over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, May God do so to me and more so if I eat bread or taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Look down at verse 38. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? That's partly why I believe that Abner was honest and legit before David and why David trusted to some degree him and didn't believe that he was simply trying to trick him. David saw something in Abner, believed it was a good thing, a faithful thing. So the third thing that David does here is he actually mourns Abner's death and then honors him with this nice lament. The last thing is that he leaves the judgment of Joab to God. Look at verse 39. I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. So we find there that what David says basically is, you know, these men obviously deserve to die. The law demanded that you put an innocent man to death, that your life be taken. But they were some pretty powerful guys. They were high up in David's military. David realizes that. It might have fractured some things had he acted upon that. And so what he does, he basically says, okay, I'm going to let the Lord deal with this one. I'm simply going to trust that the Lord will judge Joab and his family. And so he leaves that to the Lord. So the word I want to use to summarize this section is the word long-suffering. Long-suffering. Long-suffering refers to having self-restraint. It's the opposite of immediately retaliating or punishing when wronged. Now we've seen in other places where David will execute the laws demanded by the Lord, but this is not one of those situations where David felt it necessarily to immediately retaliate, where he just simply felt... This is a time where I can allow God to be the judge and to do what God needs to do and he will take care of Joab. There's an element of long-suffering in that. In fact, it wasn't until 1 Kings chapter 2 when Joab is finally killed and pays the consequence for his sins. That's Solomon does that. Solomon takes his life because of this event. And so the Lord did execute judgment on him and David was willing to do that. David was willing to be long-suffering on this. This trait of long-suffering is something we see in Christ as well, is it not? We saw this in his earthly ministry where he patiently endured the hostility of his enemies and those who persecuted, tortured, and put him to death. I remember the instance where he's standing up before his accuser. Basically said, you realize the army that I could call down? You could have squashed him like a bug, could you not? But he didn't. 
patient, was long-suffering, but he put up with the Pharisees. One of my favorite passages is 2 Peter chapter 3 because it relates to the last 2,000 years and what many of us long for. How many of you are sitting there longing for the return of Christ? Waiting for him to come back. Well, people in Peter's day were basically saying, well, he's not going to come back. Peter's response to that is, but don't let this one fact escape your notice. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. In other words... The Lord's patient. Don't be concerned that it's been, in Peter's day, a couple of decades. For us, it's now been a couple of thousand years. He goes on in verse 9 and he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise. In other words, he's not avoiding his promise. He's not going to not fulfill it. But he's patient. That's the word for long-suffering towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. One of the traits we see in not just the Father, but Christ, is their long-suffering. Their willingness to wait. Think about what we look at here. The Lord wiped out the earth once before, did he not? It had become so wicked and so evil that it was, according to the biblical text in Genesis, it became filled with violence. To where God only saw eight individuals. Eight individuals that he would rescue and put on a boat. The rest he wiped out. Promise not to do that again, which means that he's been long-suffering since then because we still continue many of the same patterns. In fact, even at the Tower of Babel, they were so quick to go back to some of their same patterns and instead of wiping them out, God scattered them. God has been waiting and long-suffering. We know how the story ends, don't we? We know that God ultimately will pour out his wrath. He will judge sin. He will judge his enemies. But man, has he been patient. Man, has he waited. It's because he's long-suffering. Because he doesn't wish for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So another trait that we see evidenced in David is his willingness to be long-suffering, to wait on the Lord. Same way that the Lord himself, Jesus, is long-suffering towards us and towards his creation. Let's look at the last one. It's found in chapter 4. After the death of Abner, two of Ishbosheth's, that's um, Jonathan's son who was king over Israel, or king over the northern tribes, Israel, two of his military commanders assassinate him in hopes of gaining David's favor. Look at verses 5 through 8 of chapter 4. So the sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, Rechab, or Rechab and Bana, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. That sounds like my wife. Midday rest. They came to the middle of the house as if or as if to get wheat and they struck him in the belly and Rechab or Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house, as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him and they took his head and traveled by way of Arba all night. It says that they actually brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance. 
this day on Saul and his descendants. Think David would be happy about that? Again, the only thing standing in his way of becoming king, he's halfway there, he's king over Judah. He's halfway there. Think David would be relieved, excited about this? Well, look at how he responds. Look at verses 9 and 10. David answered, Rechab and Bana's brother, sons of Rimmon, the Bitharite, and he said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and, brought, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for this news. In other words, what are you guys thinking? Do you not realize what I do? Don't remember what I did to the guy that killed Saul? That's their first clue. So he didn't receive the death as good news, first off. And then he recognized their actions were that of murder and murder of an innocent man. Look at verse 11. He says, How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man? In his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? So he not only didn't receive it as good news, but he declared them guilty of murder, guilty of killing an innocent man. And then the last thing he does is he executes them in accordance with the law. Look at verse 12. Then David commanded the young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hung them beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. Now what makes this wicked here in David's mind, had they been in battle against one another, the north and the south, and his life had been taken as an act of war, that would be one thing. But that's not what happened. As far as David was concerned at this point, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was the king of Israel. He was waiting for the Lord to do what the Lord would say. He was willing to be patient and allow the Lord to bring that about. Remember, he asked the Lord, what should I do? Should I go take it now? Or what? And the Lord says, well, don't go up there. Instead, go to Hebron. And the Lord makes him king only of Judah. David was content with that at this point. Knowing full well that at some point he would be king over Israel. The word I want to use to summarize this is a little odd. It's the word legitimate. David knew the throne was ultimately his because God had promised it to him, but he wasn't interested in attaining it through illegitimate means. In other words, murdering Saul's son. David saw that as an assassination, not an act of war. And so David was not interested in taking the kingdom by unlawful or illegitimate means. They had no right to go in there and and murder this man in his sleep even though he was king of Israel. Even though that rightfully belonged to David, they had no right to do that. And David recognized that. So in accordance with the law, David had him executed. Do you think we see this trait of legitimacy in Christ? I think of a specific episode. Do you remember the temptation of Christ? Do you remember what those temptations were by Satan? What Satan offered Christ? He's supposed to be king, is he not? And what does Satan offer him? I will give you the kingdoms of this world. You just bow down and worship me. Everything he offered Christ there would have been an illegitimate attempt 
to give Christ what was rightfully his, but through illegitimate means. And Christ wasn't interested in that. I believe the reason is Christ knew that his rightful place as not just Savior but King had to go through the cross because that's what the Father's plan was. The legitimate means for Christ to become King went through the cross. It's all a process. He couldn't circumvent that process halfway through. He couldn't come to earth and say, you know, now that I'm here, I could just take all this. Why go to the cross? I'm the king. I'm already in the flesh. I can reign for a thousand years in the millennial king, just like God promised. But it would have been illegitimate. It would have been accomplished through illegitimate means, bowing down and giving himself to the Lord's enemy. Christ was all about legitimacy. He walked through God's purpose and plan and accomplished his role as king through the legitimate path that the Lord had set before him. Same thing David desired. And so I like to use the word legitimate to summarize this section here because David believed in legitimacy. And, you know, we again, we see him struggle at times. But for the most part, as you look at his life, he always wanted to do things the way the Lord wanted them done including how he came to the king, or how he came to the role of king. Remember, for years he was pursued by Saul. He had opportunity to kill Saul himself and take the throne. He didn't. Then after Saul's death, he was given opportunity to take the throne, and he didn't. Because the Lord had a plan and had a purpose. And if David followed that purpose and plan, then he would rightfully take the throne as God's legitimate king. And again, we see that reflected in Christ where he is rightfully our king, he was rightfully our savior because of the legitimacy of God's plan and his willingness to follow that plan. I came across a quote, I'll summarize with this, I came across a quote from a man named Adrian Warnock. He's a Christian doctor and author from London, England. He says this, If there are aspects of David's personality that remind us of ourselves, there are also echoes of someone else. In reading about the characteristics of David that made him a great leader, there is another figure that immediately springs to mind. Surely it wouldn't take much work to go through each of those characteristics and demonstrate that the one who was pleased to be called the son of David fulfills each and every one of them. That's what we see here today. Each one of these traits, each one of these words that we've seen in David are designed to be a foreshadowing. It's designed to be a tutor to lead us to Christ to show us what he is like. Now, David, again, is not a perfect type. They never are. But he was nonetheless a type, a representation of Christ. And so as we look at David and we see these things, we see the submission to the Father. We actually see his loyalty. We saw his forgiveness. We saw his long-suffering, and then we see his legitimacy. All of those things that we see in David here give us a picture, a glimpse of who our Savior is.